Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We've got a lot of exciting things to discuss on today's program. Earlier this week, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai gave an interview to Bloomberg Television, and she broke down a few more of the issues that the Biden administration is watching with regard to trade with China. Of course, that matters tremendously to agriculture. So joining me in segment two will be Simon Lester, the editor of the China Trade Monitor. He'll talk about what Catherine Tai said and what we learned in that interview. Then in segment three, Arlen Suderman, the chief commodities economist with StoneX, will be joining us. We've got supply and demand estimates coming from USDA tomorrow. Arlen will shed some light on what he expects to see from that USDA report. And at the end of the show, we'll be speaking with Cam Quarles. He's the president of the National Potato Council. And potatoes scored a big win in gaining full access to Mexico. But there's cautious optimism, I should say. Cam will explain that a little bit later when he joins us here on the program. Before we talk about all of that, though, folks, one thing I think we've all noticed are higher fuel prices at the pump. Consumers have found a way to save a little bit. The RFA recently did a new analysis showing that E15 sales were a record in 2021. To help explain this a little bit better, joining me now is Jeff Cooper. He's the president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. And Jeff, it's good news to see some data backing up the stories we've been hearing about U.S. consumers saving money with ethanol. Well, that's right, Mike. We finally got uh, full calendar year data for 2021. Uh, to look at and, and see what it showed us in terms of E15 sales. And what we learned is that E15 sales jumped about 60% in 2021 compared to 2020 and hit a new record of, of more than 800 million gallons. Uh, and, and again, we, we know that's because consumers are, are gravitating toward the lowest cost fuel at the pump. And even before the Ukraine crisis and, and $4 gasoline, that lowest cost option at the pump was E15. It's you know typically been about a dime below E10, uh, but in recent weeks and really since the middle of February, since the Ukraine situation, uh, we've seen that spread between E15 and E10 grow to as much as 30, 40, sometimes 50 cents uh, lower than E10, and, and obviously consumers are responding to that. So we think the surge in E15 sales we saw in 2021 has definitely continued in 2022 and, and has probably accelerated. Yeah, I've got a feeling when that data comes out, this really high price fuel is going to be driving more consumers. Jeff, have we heard from retailers? Are consumers demanding it so much that retailers are looking at expanding to E15? Oh, we absolutely have heard from retailers that they are uh, looking at, at every option they have to try and get E15 uh into the into their systems uh you know even the majors like bp and shell are now an, announcing a, a move into e15 bp is is now offering e15 at eight uh at terminals in eight states in the midwest um and that's really the first time we've seen a major offer e15 as a branded product uh at the terminal so we are seeing some real progress and and that's you know that's really when the uh, the dam starts breaking is when you get um, the product offered at the terminals as a branded product, uh, and, and we're beginning to see that. Now, the unfortunate part of all this is unless Washington, D.C. gets their act together and, and acts immediately, uh, all of this progress that we're seeing on E15 is, is in jeopardy because come June 1st, that lowest cost fuel option at the pump, that E15, could disappear um, because of, of the, again, this decades-old regulation that we have that, that effectively bans the sale of E15 during the summer months in two-thirds of the country. And Jeff, I know RFA has done a lot of the legwork in seeing just how politically popular it is to offer E15 year-round, and it's very popular, isn't it? It is. In fact, we, we uh, do you know nationwide surveys uh, from time to time, and the last one we did included some questions about uh, you know the response to the situation in the Ukraine and, and record high gas prices and, and what you know what options do voters see as the best way 
to address uh, the pain at the pump that they're experiencing. And more than four out of five registered voters, 83%, uh, said, hey, we ought to be increasing our production, our domestic production of renewable fuels like ethanol as a way to bring down pump prices. Um, and specifically on E15, we saw about three and four voters, 72%, uh, said, hey, why aren't we increasing the availability of E15 as a way to replace those oil imports that we were getting from Russia and, and as a way to drive down gas prices? So consumers get it, especially those that have uh, been using E15. Uh, it seems like once they try it one time, uh, they're a, a customer for life, um, and we're seeing that product really spread in the marketplace Again, we just need a little bit of help on the regulatory front uh, from uh, from our friends fr- friends in D.C. Is that help coming? June 1st is just around the corner. Jeff, are we going to get this resolved? Well, we, we sure hope so. And we know there is a lot of pressure on the White House right now uh, to get this fixed, uh, to, to get some sort of uh, at least stopgap measure in place that would allow retailers to continue selling E15 this summer. I mean, just imagine... Uh, how bad the optics are going to be for this administration if that lowest cost fuel that's available anywhere in the marketplace disappears on June 1st and drivers face another price hike, uh, all because of some arcane regulations. So yes, uh, our friends in in the Senate and in the House uh, are really weighing in with this administration um, and trying to get them to do everything they can to make sure that American consumers continue to have access to this lowest cost fuel come summertime. You know, Jeff, it's been fascinating to see this price, this spike in fuel prices happen at the same time social media use is very commonplace. And I've seen so many people sharing pictures of gas pumps with the prices up there. And it seems like ethanol is always the cheapest option. I know RFA is looking to get more of those pictures out there. Could you talk about your pump up the savings sweepstakes program? Yeah, it's it's really quite simple, Mike. And you're right. It, you know, oftentimes a, a picture is worth a thousand words. And and it's been amazing how much success we've had in just showing people in, in Washington, hey, this is what's happening on the ground. When you can show them a picture of a pump that has E15 priced 25 or 30 cents below E10, or it has E85 priced a dollar or a dollar 50 below E10, that's when the wheels really start turning and people understand what sort of savings ethanol is offering. So we do have a, a, a promotional campaign out there right now. Uh, where all you have to do is post a picture on Twitter of your local pump prices. If 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 you got a station that sells E15 or E85, uh, snap a picture, uh, put it on Twitter. There's certain hashtags that we want you to use, um, and, and you got a chance. We you get entered into a drawing for a $50 uh, gas card um, once a week. So uh, check that out on our Twitter account, and uh, we would certainly encourage everybody to participate because, again, uh, show and tell uh, seems to be the most effective way of, of getting this message across right now. It certainly does. Always appreciate Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, taking the time to join us. Jeff, hope you have a great day today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. And folks, stick around. We'll talk China trade with Simon Lester when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Mike Rowe here with a gentle reminder that civilization is held together by pipes, wires, and cables. It's true. There are over 5 million miles of gas lines, power lines, fiber optic lines, water lines, and sewer lines all buried beneath your feet. And every 60 seconds, somebody digs into one. Look, if you're thinking about digging around, do yourself a favor and call 811 first just to find out what's down there. Trust me. 
You don't want to find out the hard way. Call or click 811 before you dig and visit safeexcavator.com for more info. When it comes to your 2022 seed decisions, don't step over the line. Buy new, professionally produced seed from authorized seed companies and dealers. The Seed Innovation and Protection Alliance membership of 100 companies invest 15% of their sales into product research and development that can take 7 to 16 years, with total costs ranging from $1 million to $140 million for new genetics and or traits. SEPA thanks farmers for buying new seed that not only maximizes yield potential, but also funds the next great seed innovations for U.S. farmers. To anonymously report a seed infringement, call 1-844-SEED-TIP. Tough 5 ec is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5 ec works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, almer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough 5 ec is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5 ec or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Thursday. One crucial partner for agriculture as we look at what determines our market prices here in this country is China. They have been a huge buyer over the past several years of agricultural products, but there's always question about how trade with China is going to proceed. Two of the world's largest economies sometimes butt heads a little bit when it comes to getting some things done. Earlier this week, the U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai gave an interview to Bloomberg, and she discussed the current standings of our relationship with trade here with China. And to help us make sense of how things look in that sector, Simon Lester is joining me now. He is the editor of the China Trade Monitor. He's an attorney. He's worked for the World Trade Organization. He gets global trade. Simon, thanks for joining us today. No problem. Good to be here with you. Let's talk about Catherine Tai's uh, interview here with Bloomberg. She said that she wants to see the U.S. have a realignment of trade with China rather than a divorce. What does that mean in, in layman's terms? Well, I, I think uh, in layman's terms, I would say, it, first of all, it, it, it's positive for those who want to keep selling to China um, that, that our you know, leading, US, the leading U.S. trade official doesn't see this as a, a total break. Because there are people out there who would say, we need to cut off trade entirely with China. So she clearly doesn't say it. Um, she does, clearly doesn't think that. Now, in terms of what she means about a realignment, you know, we've been trying to parse her statements for a few months now. She gave a big speech in October about this that didn't really give us um, you know, anything concrete. This past week, she's been in Asia, so you had that Bloomberg interview. She also testified before Congress, um, before both the Senate and the House. And so she said some additional things, but I still don't think we, we know much more. Um, what she said is that one of the key things she said is we're going to continue to try to press China to open their market. But she also said that uh, – sorry, I heard a, a noise there. I don't know if I'm still connected. Oh, we've still got you, Simon. You okay, sound great. Sorry, so what sorry. else are we expecting from yeah, her? Yeah, so so she, what she said was, um, we're, in addition to pressing China to change uh, their policies, what we're going to do is focus on defending our own values and interests. Now, what does she mean by that? Well, I think that two of the things that we're likely to see are 
um, intensified uh, 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 actions to keep out goods made in China using forced labor. And um, on the other side, in the United States, we're going to see more um, you know, industrial policy type actions to develop industries here like semiconductors. So, so I think that the realignment that she imagines is along those lines. Um, what, you know, in terms of U.S. actions to open Chinese markets, I think it's going to be you know, mostly the same sorts of things. I don't think that they, they have any new ideas. There's talk of, well, we need new tools to deal with China's change behavior, but there are no suggestions for what those are. So I think it's mostly going to be keeping more Chinese products out in certain sectors that are uh, affected by forced labor, and then the U.S. Um, adopting its own form of industrial policy to compete better with China. So that's how I see the realignment. But this isn't something that's been that she stated too explicitly. You're sort of getting hints of it, suggestions of it. Over the next month or two or three, um, maybe we'll see this kind of fleshed out and developed a bit more. Simon, is part of the uh, lack of clarity from this administration on their Chinese policy due to the fact that they're waiting to see how China responds to this Russia-Ukraine situation? You know, I think they're separate. I mean, obviously, the Russia-Ukraine situation is big, um, but I, I think that the core trade issues are, are the, the same ones um, that we've seen all along. So, I, you know, I don't think that there's much link there. I think the, the reason that we're you know, having trouble getting clarity from the administration is that they're having trouble figuring out what to do. I mean, it's, it's a difficult issue. Uh, it's, it's been around for years. They were sort of, they inherited a bunch of policies from the Trump administration that they might not necessarily like, but they don't know how to undo them. So they just can't really think of good ideas for, for what to do about the, the, the trade problems that people have identified for a long time with China. And I think that what they're looking at, they're looking for sort of an alternative to traditional Trade, trade disputes and conflicts, and um, you know, managing the trade relationship. So I, that's you know, that's the example I give of using you know, U.S. using industrial policy, you know, subsidies to the semiconductor industry. They see that as sort of a, a better approach. It's sort of a non-trade approach to dealing with a trade problem. You know, we can't get, we can't seem to stop China from subsidizing its semiconductor industry. Um, so we'll just do the same thing here. Um, which you know isn't sort of a direct trade measure as we're used to thinking about, but they they think it will you know, help uh, make that improve the situation uh, through non-trade means. Well, and we still do have, of course, the traditional tools for dealing with trade issues. One of those is the World Trade Organization. Simon, I know you wrote this past week about some of the U.S. concerns they've raised to that body about China's COVID actions and how they could impact food and ag products coming into China. What concerns does the U.S. have? Yeah, China's been doing some some strange things that you know. I mean, there you know there there have been all kinds of crazy suggestions out there related to COVID. So one of the things that in China is somebody is expressing concerns that imports of food um, could bring in COVID. Uh, you know, somehow like the the, the molecules are, are on the food packaging, and, and whoever then picks it up in China can get it. I don't think there's any scientific basis to this, um, but but I, I think the Chinese have to some extent been, been you know taking measures to restrict food imports on this basis. And so the, the U.S. and others have been pressing them a bit um, over the past few months, saying, hey, there's there's really no justification for this. Um, you know, I don't get the sense that this is a, a sort of major impediment to selling uh, food products in China. I mean, it may sort of be at the margins. I mean, they're not applying it broadly to keep out all food products. So it may just be bits and pieces here and there. I don't know if any you know, U.S. agriculture producers have experienced this. So, so it's an issue that the U.S. has raised at the WTO. Other countries have raised it, but they're not raising it in you know sort of an intense way that they 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 have raised that the U.S. has raised other issues. So so I get the sense this is relatively minor, um, and it's 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 something that the Chinese use. You know, there's a lot of discretion over there to keep out products, um, maybe for sort of you know political reasons, um, and maybe they're using this as a as a as, a, as another tool. Um, you know, if they're mad at Australia or or some government for some you know political decision they've taken, they can sort of use this as one of the tools. Uh, but, but it's sort of been under the surface, and, and nobody's raising it that loudly, so I, I suspect that it, it's not having, as, not having a huge impact, but, but it is out there and sort of a, a hassle for, for some producers somewhere.
That makes sense. Simon, one of the current concerns about China is their their state of demand as we get into 2022 with the shutdown of Shanghai. That is ongoing as far as I understand. Does China maintaining their COVID zero policy scare you about the potential for Chinese consumer demand as we go through this year? Uh, it, it does worry me, and I, I, I do feel like, you know, I'm not an expert on the Chinese economy, but my, my sense of it is it feels very precarious. Um, you know, they've had a long period of growth, and it, it seemed to me that just in general that, you know, that, that might be coming to an end just given the sort of the demographics there. And then we have their, their very severe um, COVID policies and you know, potential crashes in the property market and, and other things, and so you put all that together – and I, I would worry about you know the the sort of the short term strength of the chi- of the Chinese economy, maybe even the long term. Like, are, are we heading for some sort of crash? And, and should the people who sell to China, you know, should should they be worried about that? I mean, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. It's definitely something to be concerned about. It's hard to predict these kinds of crashes, but they do happen, and you want to be ready for them. I mean, if I were a producer selling, you know, having significant sales in China, I would just sort of make a note to myself that you know. Be prepared uh, for, for these sales to fall in half. Just be ready for that. I'm not saying it's going to happen, um, but you want to have it in mind that you, you, know, you need to think about just for, for your own you know, financial well-being. You know, don't count on that money coming in. Now, hopefully it will. Hopefully, none of that, hopefully that crash won't happen. Hopefully you know, all the sales will continue to go through, but it does seem to me that the Chinese economy is a bit precarious and anyone selling there should, should be aware of that. Simon, looking out here over the next couple of weeks, are there any big events with regard to trade with China we should be having an eye out for? You know, I think that the, the big event in, in U.S. trade policy towards China is trying to formulate this Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is basically the U.S. the way the U.S. is trying to develop, expand economic relations with other countries in the region. So there was the famous Trans-Pacific Partnership that the U.S. didn't join, but other countries went ahead with. The U.S. is trying to is trying to promote this alternative, um, where we just we have various ways, not not sort of traditional trade liberalization, but they're trying to come up with various ways to increase economic integration and cooperation with other countries in the region. And, you know, I tend to think that there's not going to be too much here. It won't have that much of a big impact, but it, it does. the U.S. is, I think, going to announce something soon about what specifically they have in mind here. It will be nice to have some clarity from this administration. In the meantime, Simon Lester, we always appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. Folks, you can check out the Chinatrademonitor.com, excuse me, Chinatrademonitor.com for all of Simon's thoughts and tune in. We'll have more AOA when we return. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. Farmer's Log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Weekly export sales and shipments we saw for the week ending March 31st was 30.8 million bushels of old crop corn, 5.7 million bushels of new crop, soybeans 29.4 million bushels of old, 11 of new crop, wheat 5.7 million bushels of old, and 8.2 million bushels of new crop. China was the featured buyer of U.S. soybeans in the week ending March 31st at a net 16 million bushels, although 2.4 million of that was shifted from previous sales to unknown destinations. 
Conab also lowered their soybean production estimate in Brazil to 122.4 million metric tons this morning, down from 125.5 million metric tons previously. Conab put total corn production at 115.6 million metric tons, up from 112.3 million metric tons previously. Now, the large safrina crop is still largely heading into the critical pollination phase with a dry forecast for the northern half of the belt. Roughly a quarter of the crop currently said to be encountering some degree of stress. USDA is expected to adjust its estimates tomorrow, while some downward adjustments could also be seen for Argentina. Crude oil prices are 1% higher this morning, while the grain and oilseed markets are mixed to lower ahead of tomorrow's USDA WASDE crop report. Now, soybeans have broke out to the upside a bit, but corn and wheat remain lower. Right now, May soybeans up 17 to three quarters, 1637 at a quarter. May bean meal up 30 cents a ton, 462.10. May bean oil up 108.7291. May corn down five and three quarters, 750 at three quarters. May Chicago wheat down six and a quarter, 1032. May Kansas City wheat down five and a half, 1079 and a half. May spring wheat down a half penny, 1108 and a quarter. April live cattle up 60, 138.30. April feeder cattle up 92, 158.02. April hogs up five at 98.80. Crude oil up $1.53 at 97.76. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. Taking a look over at the markets right now, we've got weakness in corn, strength in soybeans, and weakness in the wheat complex, in addition to some ongoing, well, I guess slight strength here in the energy markets. West Texas Intermediate crude oil, still below 100 bucks a barrel right now, just shy of $97. To help make sense of everything that's going on in the markets, Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX, joins me now. Arlen, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Mike. Uh, these markets just never cease to amaze me of the how uh, fascinating they can be, although frustrating for both farmers and for end users. Yeah, this volatility is certainly a reason to keep your head on a swivel. Arlen, we're planning ahead for tomorrow's April WASDE reports coming out of the USDA. Analysts I've read expect to see a small drop in corn ending stocks. Is that where your head is for tomorrow's report? Yeah, we're looking for corn ending stocks to be around 1.403 billion bushels. That would be down from USDA at 1.440 last time, so relatively small decrease. It'll factor in the quarterly stocks uh, report numbers that came out on March 31st, and so no big change there. The big thing on corn was the reduced acreage that we saw on March 31st in the planning intentions report. That doesn't factor into the USDA WASDE crop report until May 12th. That's when USDA will issue its first balance sheet for the new marketing year, the 22-23 marketing year. And I think that's when we kind of get some fireworks. All right. On the soybean side, are there any surprises anticipated on tomorrow's reports? 
Yeah, that's a question I always get, but if I knew, I guess they wouldn't be surprises. But uh, generally, the expectation is is that uh, USDA will continue to ratchet down its ending stocks estimate. It was at 285 million bushels last month, and it's expected to continue to drop maybe another 20, 25 million off of it this month. Export sales remain strong for this time of year, unseasonably strong. And over the last couple of weeks, we finally started to see shipments start to ratchet up as well. And this is expected to be just the beginning of what we expect to be a strong summer export season for soybeans. And so my ending stocks estimate is 196 million bushels, a little bit over 4% stocks to use ratio, which tightens things up and, and makes it essential that we have a good soybean crop this year. Although, as we saw on March 31, planning intentions suggest that we're going to have big acreage this year, but we're still going to have to have something close to a trend yield there. Uh, we can't see uh, a big weather problem cut into that or we'll have problems again. We certainly will. I mean, those pro problems we've seen over the past several years in Brazil are still having an impact. Uh, Arlen, Conab has released some of their most recent production numbers coming out of Brazil. Have any of their numbers surprised you? I know Stonex was quick and early to cut down Brazil's soybean production. Do you feel like they're on the right pace? Yeah, I think so. Uh, our estimate is 122.1 million metric tons of soybeans. Conab came down to 122.4, so they're getting very close to where we're at now. Our estimate is based on a survey of our customers in Brazil across the different provinces and states there. Uh, and I think once we get past this report tomorrow, the soybean crop will largely be known. There will be just minor adjustments on it from that point forward. Then the real focus is on the corn crop. Uh, we're at 118.6. Conab is a little bit lower than that yet at this point. We did come up this month because at the beginning of the month the crop was looking really good. But since then we've seen a sharp turn in the forecast drying out, as you indicated in the new segment there, drying out the, roughly the northern half of the belt. About 25% of that belt is now under stress, and that is increasing each day we go. The one thing fortunate for them is they don't have a lot of heat with this dry stretch right now, but it is moving into the pollination stage, and their soils are not near as forgiving when it dries out as what they are here in the Midwest. So we're anxious to see how they're able to get through the pollination phase and what impact that might have on their safrina corn production. Arlen, one of the trends that keeps coming up whenever we have a discussion is just the overall physical tightness of supplies around the world in almost every commodity. I wanted to pick your brain on this. JP Morgan issued a report recently, and they say they believe commodity prices could surge additionally by as much as 40%. Does that seem reasonable to you? Is there enough global cash to push commodities up another 40%? There is enough to do that. Will that happen? I, I don't know. But I've been saying for some time that I've really taken the top off of my estimates of how high this thing can go. I really believe that we face significant risk over the next year or two of tight food and feed supplies and uh, that we face some real challenges, particularly in light of some of the weather forecasts that we've seen. And earlier this week, we saw the European model, which is one of the major weather models, um, come out with its outlook for the rest of the spring and for the summer. And it's calling for the droughts currently in the plains to expand across the Midwest and for July and August to be particularly dry and hot. Looking at their, their models, it looks a lot like 2012. Now, I need to say a little bit of a caveat there, when they began to run those models and initiate those models, we saw sea surface temperatures in the equatorial Pacific turn lower, which was the opposite direction that they had previously been expecting. So I think the models assumed persistence there, that we were going to persist in La Nina. In fact, the European model for the ENSO cycle or for the equatorial Pacific does show persistence of La Nina now through the growing season. I don't think that we can say for sure that's going to happen, but the bottom line is we may see that type of summer. I just don't think that the odds are as high as what the models suggest, but it is a legitimate risk, and particularly in a year when Ukraine is expected to be largely absent from the export market over the next 18 months. 
it, that is critical. And if I'm an end user, I would really worry about that possibility of seeing drought in the Midwest this summer because that could cause explosive action in this corn market with the amount of money that's involved with funds trying to hedge our portfolios against the erosion of inflation. Well, and that inflation, Arlen, is such a key topic. It was uh, discussed at the Fed's Federal Open Market Committee meeting here this last month that they are going to bring down the balance sheet by as much as a trillion dollars over this next year. Does the Fed shrinking the balance sheet by that figure, Arlen, does that do much to actually cut down on inflationary pressure? Well, it's a good start. Uh, we estimate that there's about $1.6 trillion of extra money, surplus money, just slush, sloshing around in the economy right now. And uh, you could remove that before it starts to have any adverse effect on the financial markets. That would still leave more than $5 trillion of stimulus in the system, although the economy has grown very addicted to having that money in the system. But I think at that point, that's when you start really starting to drag things down and the Fed will have have to be very careful in the pace at which it, at which it withdraws once we get to that point. But I think when uh, uh, Fed Governor uh, Brainerd earlier this week made her comments about being much more aggressive on shrinking the balance sheet and raising interest rates, that really caught the markets off guard because she's considered one of the bigger doves on the Fed. And so for her to turn so hawkish, I think, really shocked the markets. And now the concern is, will they be too aggressive and uh, really pull us into a recession? So it's a fine line that the Fed has to walk here, and they'll be monitoring it from meeting to meeting. But the current expectation is 50 basis points of additional rate hike at the May 4th meeting uh, and the start to shrink in that balance sheet. And the current thinking is roughly $195 billion per month coming out of the balance sheet. We'll continue to watch how that develops. Arlen, we spoke with Jeff Cooper, president of the Renewable Fuels Association here in segment one, looking at the ethanol demand, which has been very strong over the past six months. From your perspective, as an analyst who looks at these numbers, how do you anticipate ethanol demand maintaining its strength here as we get into the summer? Do, do, you, do you anticipate seeing the same level of demand moving forward? Well, ethanol is at a critical point right now because the EPA can hit the reset button on the renewable fuel standard as we get into 2023. And this administration has had a, shown a lot of mixed signals on its support. On the one hand, acting like it's not supporting uh, the biofuels, particularly ethanol, uh, corn-based ethanol, I should say. And on the other hand, rumors that it's working on 50, uh, allowing 15% blend year-round. So that's a real mixed signal. We're really not sure which way they're going to go. Longer term, I'm very encouraged by reports that ethanol can serve as a feedstock for sustainable aviation fuel, and demand for that looks to be very strong. But we're probably talking three to five years before we start to see that demand start to step up. So there could be some rough times in the meantime if we don't see that 15% or move toward 15% blend sooner before that. All right, we'll continue to watch Arlen Chinese corn purchases. Do you see more coming from the U.S. here in our old crop supplies before summer gets started? I do, and not because they necessarily need it now. Their feed demand is down 5 to 6% now because of the poor feeding margins for hogs uh, and because of the lockdowns. That's the biggest problem right now is the COVID-related lockdowns with a large portion, over 100 million people currently in lockdown in China, and that continues to grow. Um, but China, I believe, is showing concern about the tightness of world supplies, and they're worried about getting enough supplies. So I do expect them to be forward buying those supplies and trying to build their reserves at this time and kind of hoarding supplies. And I think that will end up supporting their demand. That's something we'll be watching as summer gets closer. Big thanks to Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX. And folks, we'll be talking to Cam Quarles, President of the National Potato Council, when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. 180 over 111 and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 
145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. Learn more at SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. Tough 5EC is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5EC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, almer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around.
keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, thanks for tuning in to AOA Today, ladies and gentlemen. Before we go for the day, it's time to check in with the potato industry. That branch of American agriculture has been fighting a couple of battles for, well, some time. They have been battling for full access into the country of Mexico for fresh potatoes. And they've also been battling to keep American potatoes safe from potato wart. Joining me today for an update on both of those issues is Cam Quarles. He's the CEO of the National Potato Council. And Cam, thank Thanks for joining us today. Mike, good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about this announcement of American potatoes getting full access to Mexico. I understand we've got some qualified optimism on this front. Cam, what has been discussed recently? Well, a lot of credit needs to go to Secretary Vilsack and the, his team at USDA, as well as Ambassador Ty's team at USTR. They've been spending, I, I think everybody has recognized that uh, after an agreement was signed in, back in November by the U.S. and Mexico, there had been some backsliding. We, we had been hopeful, hopeful that the market was going to open right around the first of the year. That didn't happen. USDA, USTR, they went back to the drawing board, uh, sat down with their Mexican counterparts, and I, I think they've been applying a lot of pressure to make that uh, market access real. Uh, Secretary Vilsack traveled down to Mexico City this week and uh, sat uh, next to his counterpart, Secretary Villalobos, where they made a joint statement saying that their belief is that the market can now open on May 15th. If that's the case, Mike, that would be uh, the, uh, the a market access that comes after 25 years of battles between uh, the U.S. and Mexico. Uh, the Mexican industry has been um, very defensive of their market. They effectively have a monopoly on their market right now. They didn't want to give that up, so it had been a very, very long battle, one of the longest disputes that USDA has ever dealt with. We're hopeful that that May 15th deadline holds. We simply don't know at this point. There are some other pieces that need to be put into place to make it real. And Cam, for our listeners out there who maybe aren't in the potato industry, we should have started with this. As of, as of today, as before this joint announcement, what are the restrictions on American fresh potatoes moving into Mexico? Yeah, so the the it's a it's kind of a convoluted tale, but going back over two decades ago, um, the U.S. has been trying to get full access for, for fresh potatoes. Um, the, that a number of different regulatory as well as legal battles followed um, throughout those 25 years. At one point, the Mexican government uh, partially opened their market, and it's a strange thing. I, 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 I can't think of a similar case anywhere else um, that the U.S. deals with. They opened a very narrow band, effectively from the U.S.-Mexico border, 26 kilometers south. So it's it's where the vast majority of customers uh, do not exist in Mexico, but it enabled the Mexican government at that time to say, well, uh, we're allowing potatoes into our country. It's just not it's just not where people want to buy them. So there there are potatoes coming into the country. Um, but it's on a very, very limited basis. What Secretary Vilsack announced this week is that the entirety of Mexico will now be eligible uh, to receive U.S. fresh potatoes. Obviously, opens us up to the major population centers, Mexico City, uh, all of the all of the restaurants uh, and retail stores that would be um, that would be eligible, along with their processing industry. So, turning potatoes into potato chips and those kinds of things. So big shout out to the USDA on negotiating this access. Hopefully will be greenlit on May 15th. Cam will be watching for updates on that. But it sounds like the USDA also maybe made a decision you're less thrilled with, with the agreement to re-import potatoes from Prince Edward Island. Cam, what are your concerns with potatoes from PEI? Yeah, it's that, that one was uh, uh, kind of a, a tough one for us. So uh, Prince Edward Island, uh, it's a, it's a, Potato production area up in up in Canada, up in the eastern part of Canada. Um, unfortunately, they've been dealing with a, a terrible disease called potato wart. 
uh, incredibly hardy disease. It will sit in the soil dormant for four decades or better. And then when it comes in contact with host material, potatoes, um, it can be off and running again. Uh, we don't want that. We don't have it in the U.S. We don't want it in the U.S. Unfortunately, Prince Edward Island has been dealing with uh, a, a ramping up of disease detections over the past few years. It resulted in USDA shutting down the entirety of uh, Prince Edward Island exports to the U.S., as well as Canada restricting some of their potato production from transiting to other provinces. USDA looked at the data, and they're allowing uh, a PEI table stock potatoes, not seed potatoes, but, uh, but table stock potatoes, to re-enter the U.S., our our message to USDA, we wanted them to have the growers in PEI have to test their fields and ensure that those fields are clean before they resume exports again. USDA didn't take that step. Um, we're going to continue working both with USDA and CFIA to try to do that. That's a standard that Canada applies on uh, certain production areas in the U.S. where we've had uh, pest and disease issues in the past. We think it's only fair that uh, uh, the PEI growers adhere to the same standard we're under by the, by the Canadian government. Does it sound like that will take hold? Will those rules be put into place, Camp? Uh, we're we're going to keep at it. I, I really don't know the answer to that, Mike. We think it's a pretty reasonable step. Um, I, I, I think it's it's been very disruptive to the North American trade to have PEI out of the U.S. market. So we want to see their potatoes back in the U.S. We just want to see them exported here in a in a fashion that doesn't threaten our our uh, our activities. So I, it, it, all of this can be done pretty quickly, and we think it's it's the right thing to do. All right. Well, hopefully the USDA is tuning in. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be with you, Mike. And folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll be talking to Dan Halstrom of the U.S. Meat Export Federation about the strong sales of U.S. protein for the first two months of this year. We'll see you then. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Okay, gotta be late. Gotta go, gotta go. Where'd I put... Ah, wallet. Check. And... Oh, phone. Uh, check. Keys. Check. Lunch. Check. Checking for the things you need doesn't take long. But what about checking for your safety? Right now, one in every five vehicles on the road has an open safety recall. But it only takes seconds to check for open recalls on your car at checktoprotect.org. All you need is your vehicle identification number or license plate number. Your automaker may not have the right information to notify you about recalls by mail, especially if you recently moved or drive an older or used car. Checktoprotect.org is the quick, easy way to find out if your vehicle has an open safety recall and find the closest dealer who can make the repair for free. Oh, oh, laptop. Check. Before you go, take a minute. Visit Checktoprotect.org. Check to Protect is a program of the National Safety Council.